those of you who know me know that I am a sucker for pretty much everything Christmas. So thanks to the choir for that beautiful piece uh, incorporating that beautiful Christmas song. I was actually asked this week in a meeting about my favorite Christmas tradition. And honestly, it was, it was kind of a hard question to answer as I went through all the things that I love about Christmas, decorating the Christmas tree, our annual trip around the neighborhood, looking at, at Christmas lights, heading out to Cranax, Miracle on Easy Street, the Italian Feast of the Seven Fishes. There's just so much to choose from. But one of the things that I, I really do love about Christmas in the Christmas season is Christmas music. I mean, you, you can come around me pretty much any time from Thanksgiving until Christmas, whether it's in my office, in my car, in our home, the, the sounds of Perry Como and Nat King Cole and Vince Guaraldi and Harry Connick Jr., maybe my favorite, are always on and playing. So in the middle of my my annual Christmas music binge, I uh, recently heard the song, When You Believe. You might know it. Uh, it was actually written, Children of the 90s, uh, for the 1998 film, The Prince of Egypt. Uh, but it was made popular again by the epic vocal group, Pentatonix, when they re-released it a few years back. It's, it's musically stunning, it's incredibly moving. I can't promise that a few tears haven't been shed into my evening eggnog as that song plays in the background. Uh, but lyrically, the song explores the uncertainties, the fears, and even the sorrows of life. And it, it probes the depths of that, asking what hope there can be in the midst of that sorrow. How, how can a person endure hardship and frailty? And the answer comes in the chorus. There can be miracles when you believe. Though hope is frail, it's hard to kill. Who knows what miracles you can achieve when you believe, somehow you will, when you believe. That chorus reminds me of a mantra that I hear uh, from Christians and even sometimes non-Christians, keep the faith, right? When you're, when you're down in the dumps as a form of encouragement, just kind of a, a slap on the back, just keep the faith, man, just keep the faith. But is that what faith really is? Is that how how biblical faith really works, a kind of generic, just believe. Well, believe in what? And how? And why? As we get deeper into the Christmas season, it seems appropriate, doesn't it, to, to study the life and ministry of Jesus and to pursue answers to these important questions about true faith. So with that, would you grab your Bibles or your phone or your device and meet me in Mark's Gospel. Chapter 5 uh, in Mark's Gospel, and we will look this morning at verses 21 to 43. Mark 5, 21 to 43. Let's hear God's word. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. And he went with him. 
And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of the disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about the crowd and said, who touched my garments? His disciples said to him, you, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him and, and told him the whole truth. And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talathakumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about this. And he told them to give her something to eat. This is God's word and we are thankful for it. So here we are entering kind of into the middle of the story of Jesus in the first half of Mark's gospel, which nags the reader with the question, who is this man? Jesus has previously given some amazing authoritative teaching. He has exercised authority over nature and even demonic forces. And so the buzz is kind of growing around town. And so is the controversy who is this guy and what will he do next? So chapter five picks up Mark's exploration of Jesus and, and directly addresses the important questions that we're asking this morning about faith. This text is, is something like a pilgrimage of true faith, a pilgrimage that is wrought with challenges and surprises and twists and turns and Jesus through both word and deed conducts a masterclass toward a true and full understanding of faith. In the opening verses, we observe the beginning seeds of faith that are accented by a couple of things, desperation and willingness. The seeds of faith, desperation and willingness. In verse 22, Mark introduces us to a character named Jarius. He identifies him as one of the rulers of the synagogue. And culturally, this would indicate that Jarius was probably a pretty important guy. 
someone with status, someone with a reputation, someone with means, and yet all of those privileges could not help him now. Not with the situation of complete and utter despair that he was facing. What was the problem? The text tells us his daughter, the other synoptic gospels accentuate this, his only daughter was at the point of death. Now it is easy for us as modern people who are detached by time from this text to read things like this in the Bible and yawn a bit. But really, really put yourself in this man's position. These are the final hours in the room at the hospice house. The very scent of death is filling his house. He's desperate. And so in verse 23, he, he implores, he pleads with Jesus, come, please come, lay your hands on my daughter so that she may be well and live. And while this, this initial interchange doesn't tell us everything about the fullness of faith, it does tell us something. It tells us that the awareness and the profession of our need, our desperation, is the seedbed of faith. Scholar Oz Guinness says, faith begins when we get to the end of ourselves. I love that. Faith begins when we get to the end of ourselves. Have you been there? Maybe you're there like, like right now. You feel like one more disappointment, one more argument with your spouse, one more destructive interaction at work, one more phone call from the doctor or the school is going to put you just right over the edge. You're desperate. Here's the interesting thing. If all you feel like you can bring to Jesus today is your need, then you are actually on the starting blocks of faith. If you or maybe your spouse dragged you in here this morning, hanging on by a thread, your burdens are heavy, you, friend, you are on the threshold of the place where Jesus does his work. This doesn't, of course, minimize our pain, but it does help us to recast it a bit. Because if, think about it, if faith at its core is an expression of dependence and trust, and it is, then, then desperation actually serves as the backdrop of, of true faith. What's more about this initial interaction uh, is how Jesus responds in verse 24. Look at it, such a short but profound verse. And he went with him. Jesus goes. He goes with this desperate man. And, and here in, in one little verse, the Bible sh is showing us exactly who Jesus is. Jesus is the one who is willing to go. He is the one who responds in kindness. Jesus is the one who's willing to walk into the hospice room with care and intentionality. These are the seeds of faith. Our desperation and, and Jesus' willingness. And this is a decent start as we think about the fullness of faith. But then something surprising and, and even a little scandalous happens. This great crowd is following along. You can kind of picture them moving this crowd 
we meet another important character on this pilgrimage to the fullness of faith. And, and in this new character, this new scene, we see what we might call the progress of faith. Right? The progress or, or the development of faith. Pursuit and compassion. Look at verse 25. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who suffered much under many physicians. She spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. So we have a woman who, like Jairus, is in great distress. In her case, this was a chronic and debilitating disease. But unlike Jairus, this woman would have been in a much different place socially, economically, and relationally. Just being a woman in first century Palestine had its own challenges on its face, but even more for her, this disease would have made her unclean. What does that mean? That means that she essentially would have been a social outcast. Even the, the simple, profound gift of human touch would not be afforded to her. You take it even further. She'd been under the care of a lot of doctors. They made no progress. She, she apparently had means at some point because she spent her entire life savings on ineffective medical treatments. This disease had taken everything. So having heard about Jesus, she, she decides to go for it. After all, I mean, what did she have to lose? Even her, her slightly uninformed, immature faith might be enough if she could just get to Jesus. Who knows? So you can imagine her kind of pressing through the crowd. She touches Jesus's garment and is immediately healed. She she feels it in her body. She did it. She got in, she got out. But then Jesus does something really surprising, I think, in verse 30. He perceived in himself, the text tells us, that power had gone out from him. And and so he turned about the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And the disciples said, you see the crowd and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. This is curious for for a couple of reasons. We might just make a couple quick observations. First, what about Jairus' daughter? I mean, had Jesus forgotten Imagine what Jairus is thinking at this point as as Jesus does a full stop in the middle of the crowd to try to solve what what seems like an unimportant mystery. Every minute is precious. Think about an ambulance with a dying patient in the back making a pit stop on the way to the hospital. That's what what this is here. Even the disciples are a bit confused and, and incredulous. Who touched you? Everybody's touching you. Second, think about this. Jesus could have just kept going. He could have just moved along. The woman got what she wanted. Ah, but perhaps, maybe not everything she needed. You see, while the woman received her healing, Jesus had more to show, more to teach, even more to give. And so his piercing eyes are scanning the crowd The tension's rising, and in verse 33, the woman, knowing what had happened, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Notice her her disposition of fear and trembling. After all, her unclean touch would have also made Jesus himself unclean. 
Jesus was clearly on his way to do something important. Now she was causing even more of an interruption. So she's completely on edge. You can imagine the conflicting emotions, right? I mean, somewhere between elated that she was finally free of this disease and yet completely distraught by being now brought into the public eye. How would the rabbi respond? Verse 34 tells us, with compassion, compassion and truth. Jesus not swayed an inch by ritual or social expectations. He says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. You see, this woman came to Jesus in pain, but she leaves in peace. This is called healing and some. And it's important to notice what Jesus doesn't say to her, right? He doesn't say your courage or your desire or your perseverance or or even the touch itself has made you well. No, he says full of tenderness, your faith has made you well. Even though it was a bit underdeveloped and, and immature, this woman had gotten something right about faith. Get to Jesus. There's, there's something about this man. Get to Jesus. And taking care in our application here, I think at the very least we see Jesus once again receiving the needy, the rejected, even the spiritually immature and uncertain. This means that you don't need a master of divinity degree to come to Jesus in faith. You don't have to be all cleaned up and proper to come to Jesus in faith. You just have to get to Jesus. Start there and allow him to speak peace over you and lead you forward. So the picture of true faith is coming together. The combination of of our desperate need intersecting with Jesus' willingness, the pursuit of Jesus and his compassionate response, but, but there is still a major, major issue at play. What about Jairus's daughter? And right on cue, we have the final scene of the drama. We might call the, the pinnacle of faith. The pinnacle of faith. Death and resurrection. If the opening scene with Jairus and the interrupting scene of the woman have shown us a glimpse of the fullness of faith, Jesus is about to bring it all home right here. And in the the quick pace of Mark's writing style, verse 35, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher anymore? There's no doubt that many of us, most of us, have probably gotten that phone call or received that news. Your loved one has died. This is where Jarius is at. Grieving, broken, maybe even a little bit confused or angry as to why he went to Jesus in the first place. Everybody in the house acknowledges how hopeless this is. Why even bother Jesus anymore? I mean, it's, it's over. Maybe he's got the power to, to heal sickness and disease, but death That's another level. It's over. Or, or maybe Jesus knew what he was doing all along. Maybe he always does. 
Jesus looks at Jairus in the face of impossibility and says, don't fear, only believe. The the tense of Jesus' command is something like, keep on believing. He's saying, I'm still here, Jairus. Don't, Don't give up now, stay with me because I'm staying with you. And this is really it. This is the climactic call to faith. Now, apart from the context and the color that we have just witnessed, Jesus' call to belief and faith might sound more like the Pentatonix Christmas song, you know, that vague mantra, just believe. But with all the color and context that Jesus has provided for us through this pilgrimage of faith, we can deduce the essence of this text. And it's that life-giving faith is not expressed by its strong quality, but in its saving object, the Lord Jesus Christ. True faith, substantive faith, life-giving faith is not expressed by its strong quality, but in its saving object. Listen, faith is not an end to itself. It's not enough to just keep the faith. Faith needs an object It needs to be pointed somewhere. It needs to be thrust upon something. Faith on its own, in this kind of generic expression, doesn't save anyone. But Jesus, the proper object of faith, is eager to save and give new life. Life Life-giving faith isn't isn't expressed by its strong quality or quantity, but, but in the saving object. Jesus says as much in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 17, he says, truly I say to you, if if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Dear ones, life-giving faith is not about its strong quality, but in its saving object. I'm sure that we have all seen a film or read a novel when the characters are being chased, they're being pursued, they're running from a threat. It could be a dragon or a dinosaur, take your pick. But, but the chase often ends up with these characters running to the edge of a, a big waterfall. I'm sure you've seen it. And they have a decision to make. One character looks at the other and he goes, we, we gotta jump, we have to jump, it's the only way. The other character responds, are you crazy? We don't know how deep the water is. We could die, we could jump, we could die. The other character responds with confidence, we'll be fine, it's, it's deep enough, let's jump. And they jump. And it turns out the water is deep enough to, to hold the weight of their bodies and you know, the threat kind of looms angrily up on the cliff, unable to follow. The question is, which character was saved? Was it the one who was confident or the one who was hesitant? The answer, of course, is that they were both saved. (laughs) Why? Because it wasn't the quality or the quantity of their confidence in the water that saved them. It was the water, the water itself. This is what it means when we say that life-giving faith is not expressed by its strong quality but in its saving object because it is Christ who saves. It is Christ who gives life and faith is the mechanism by which we access those blessings. By the way, um, every one of us in this room has an object of faith. You're a person of faith, I'm a person of faith. For some it's, it's power and control. 
For others, it's the success of their children, getting into the right school, getting the right job. For others, it's about the stability that that our careers or maybe the financial market provides us. For others still, it's the self-sufficiency that says we don't really need faith in the first place. Even, even that, even indifference to faith is actually an expression of, and an exercise of faith. So how do we tell what our objects of faith really are? Returning to the text, I, I find verse 36 really interesting here. Verse 36, notice that, that Jesus contrasts belief not with unbelief, which is what I would expect, but with fear, Fear. Our fears can tell us a lot about our faith. Those things that we're really trusting for security, for joy, for the fullness of life. You might try this exercise this week. Ask yourself this question. What am I most afraid of losing? Because the question isn't whether you're trusting in something or not. You, you are. We're all people of faith in that regard. The question is, am I trusting in the right thing, the right object? Because life-giving faith, remember, is expressed not by its strong quality, but in its saving object. And it is Christ. It is Christ who gives life. And in this story, he proves it. Verse 39. After putting out the professional mourners and declaring the young girl, see euphemism, not dead but sleeping. She is dead. Jesus approaches her bedside. He gently takes what is very likely her cold hand, and in verse 41, with tenderness, he says, little girl, I say to you, arise. This is something like, honey, it's time to get up. And just like that, she rises and is ready for breakfast. This man, Jesus, has just proven his authority over death. And the woman with the issue of blood, just like Jairus, got more than they both bargained for, right? Because Jairus came to Jesus looking in faith for healing. And what he got was resurrection. And if it weren't enough to raise this little girl from the dead, we know that in the gospel, Jesus goes even further. He goes all the way to the cross, and and on the cross, Jesus subjects himself to the curse and the scorn and the abandonment of the woman with the issue of blood. On the cross, Jesus Christ submits to death itself all of the pain that Jesus has been undoing in Mark chapter five and showing us what the kingdom of God, the kingdom of peace really looks like under his rule. All of that pain comes full circle back to Jesus on the cross. But as Acts chapter two tells us, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it wasn't possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he's at my right hand, therefore my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. Friends, this is the joy of resurrection. And in Jesus' resurrection from the dead, God validates and vindicates Jesus as the only object worthy of our faith. 
we really can trust him. <laughs> we can trust his great compassion for sinners. We can trust his abiding and unwavering presence in the midst of our despair. We can trust in his perfect life and sacrificial death to fully appease the wrath of God and atone for sin. And we can trust that his resurrection guarantees ours. Between the FIFA World Cup and the great pleasure of seeing your Canfield Cardinals win the Division Three state championship just yesterday, I think it was yesterday or the day before, it's been a long week. But between those two sporting events, there's a chant that I'm hearing a lot of. I believe that we will win. I believe that we will win. Maybe you've heard it. What's interesting is that chant always comes from both sides. But there's only one winner. Faith is not a chant or a mantra that guarantees anything until it is placed upon the right object. So when you are looking for the thing to trust, the key object, look no further than the Lord Jesus. Give him your trust today, whether it's for the first time or to grow in your confidence for the salvation that Jesus has already provided you. Because life-giving faith, the fullness of faith is not expressed by its strong quality, but in its saving object the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his great compassion. Thank you for his willingness to leave the glories of heaven for the dust of the earth to provide all that we need and more. We are thankful that he is a trustworthy savior he doesn't leverage his authority for harm, but for good and for kindness. I pray that you will grant the gift of faith to many today. And I pray that in turn, they would take that gift and place it upon the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and the salvation of our souls, we pray in his good name, amen.